Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. After having considered in recent weeks the matters of murder and anger, adultery and lust, we come this morning to verses 31 through 37, matters related to divorce and marriage and oaths and swearing. Let's read what our Lord has to say to us in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 37. Jesus speaking says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either in heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. I do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray once more together. Father, we're so thankful to be able to come before Your Word translated into our language, passed down to us with great confidence that this is indeed Your Word recorded to us. We pray, Father, that as we consider the will of our Savior with respect to marriage and divorce and with respect to uh, how we affirm and negate using oaths or swearing, we're just letting our words stand as they are. We pray, Father, that You would help us to understand what Jesus is teaching to us, that we would apply it to our lives. Please give us help in this. Please come to us now as the Word is preached. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would come, Your presence would be among us, and that You would be our teacher. Seal these things to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, I want to occasionally remind you in these introductions to the messages of what the Sermon on the Mount really is, and how we should understand it as a whole, even as we examine more closely the various parts of the sermon. So, I just want to briefly remind you this morning of the preacher of the sermon, the context of the sermon, and the content of the sermon. The preacher of the sermon, who is it that is speaking these words to us? It is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God the Messiah who has come to save His people from their sins. And He comes not only to die on the cross for the sins of His people and to make a way of salvation for them, but also to teach them concerning the will of God, to reveal the heart of God to His people, to reveal God's commandments to them. He comes as the long-anticipated prophet who would be like Moses, the true and better prophet, the true and better Moses, the true and better lawgiver who would come as God's agent of the new covenant, would come and reveal His will to us and tell us uh, how to live as His disciples. It is Jesus, 
God's appointed man, His anointed servant, the Christ, the lawgiver, who is the preacher of this sermon. Secondly, the context. What is the context of the sermon? Well, there's a lot that could be said here. I want to emphasize just one thing, and that is that this message is a message given to disciples about discipleship. Jesus is not primarily telling us in this passage how it is that someone becomes a disciple or how it is that someone is saved or regenerated or how someone enters the kingdom, though we can deduce that from the Sermon on the Mount. Someone enters the kingdom by being born again and by believing the gospel, trusting in Christ for the salvation from their sins. But in this sermon in particular, Jesus has gathered His disciples, those who are already followers of Jesus, and He's to tell them about how they're to live as His disciples. That's the context. It's crucial that you understand that. We don't become right with God or move into a position of His favor by our meticulous attention to do what's in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, we're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but then as those who have been made right with God have become followers of Jesus Christ and sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, there's a way we're to live, and Jesus is instructing those of us who are His followers in how we ought to live. That's the context. What about the content? Of course, it's related to the context, but what is the content of the sermon? What do we have in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is telling us, in short, uh, what the ethics of His kingdom are going to be, Uh, how we're to live as citizens of what He calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He has come to inaugurate a new kingdom. He's already preached the gospel of the kingdom. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now He's telling us, what will life in the kingdom be like? How should citizens of this new kingdom live? How should those who are my followers, uh, what should they do? What should they not do? How should they walk? How should they live? That is the content of the sermon. After presenting his disciples in the opening verses with the section we normally refer to as the Beatitudes, the very statements of blessing on various ones who submit themselves to God and hunger after righteousness and give themselves to the Lord Jesus. Uh, after uh, giving those Beatitudes and then uh, talking to His disciples about their presence in the world as salt and light. And then after Jesus clarifies His relationship to uh, the law and the prophets, He Himself is the climactic fulfillment of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus then states in chapter 5, verses 22 and following, six antitheses. Uh, so He uses this formula in various ways several times. You have heard that it was said to those of old, or maybe you have just heard that it was said, but I say to you. He does this six times in chapter 5. In the first instance, he does this with respect to murder and anger. Then with respect to adultery and lust, that was last week. And then with respect to divorce, then to oaths, then to retaliation, and then to the whole matter of love for enemies. Today we consider the third and fourth of the antitheses. They are found in verses 31 through 37. Now, if you're paying close attention to the bulletin, it says in there, I'm to preach through verse 48. Just disregard that, okay? Uh, That text that's put in there is more aspirational uh, than it is actually my experience, okay? It's the preacher I want to be, but am not. Sort of the already, not yet there in your bulletins. We're going to consider this morning chapter 5, verses 31 Uh, through 37 uh, on uh, divorce and marriage, and also on the issue of oaths and swearing. And that may seem random to put those two ideas together. I don't think it was random to our Lord, and more than that, 
I do think there's at least some threads we can pull through uh, these two sections. At the very least, I think both would have something to say uh, with uh, how we uh, make vows, pledge to do what we have sworn, how we think about the commitments that we make. I do think the first section on divorce uh, is an, extra, uh, an extrapolation out from what Jesus said about adultery and lust. I felt 27 and 30 needed its own sermon, so I think it leads naturally then into 31 and 32. But I do think the issue of oaths and swearing comes up right after uh, the issue of how we think about our vows to one another in the marriage relationship for a reason. So I do think there is an organic connection between these sections. My outline this morning is very simple. Two points this morning. We'll consider, first of all, Christ's will regarding divorce, and secondly, Christ's will regarding oaths and swearing. Christ's will regarding divorce, then Christ's will regarding oaths and swearing. Consider with me first. Christ's will regarding divorce. Now look with me again, if you would, at verse 31. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Then whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let me just say first a couple of things uh, by way of sort of caveat or uh, preliminary thoughts before we begin our exposition of these verses. Uh, the first thing to say is this. Uh, this message is not going to be uh, like a topical lecture on divorce or one of those messages that addresses every question or curiosity Christians may have about the Bible's teaching on divorce. I'm preaching this morning this passage in verses 31 and 32, not a topical sermon on the subject of divorce. So I won't be providing this morning a harmony of all the passages in the Bible that address divorce. You may know, you may be familiar with the fact that the Apostle Paul, in a couple of places, addresses the issue of divorce in his epistles. Uh, to a lesser extent, I think the Apostle Peter addresses how we think about the commitments that we make in marriage uh, there in 1 Peter 3. I'm just going to state for your benefit, happy to talk more about this, just to briefly summarize my understanding of the issue of divorce and remarriage. Uh, I do believe the traditional view that Christians have held throughout the centuries, that divorce is biblically permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality and abandonment by one or the other of the spouses. And I do believe that abandonment, functional abandonment, can occur even where physical abandonment hasn't happened. I also believe the traditional view that in such cases where there have been a legitimate divorce, uh, remarriage uh, may take place. Uh, the issue of when there hasn't been a legitimate divorce, can remarriage happen? That's a little more murky. Happy to talk more with you about that. Uh, but we would be in line, I think, most with the uh, history of the church on this issue. Uh, second preliminary comment. I'm aware people come to this issue of divorce with all kinds of backgrounds and experiences uh, and emotions that shape the way uh, they may think about it. And people understandably come with lots of questions, lots of different personal and anecdotal experiences that may inform their thinking. I'm not trying in this message to speak to anyone's particular individual experience, nor am I trying to speak to those complicated corner cases that people can come up with uh, that can kind of stump the preacher. It's not my goal to envision every possible scenario uh, in which divorce comes into play. My job this morning, again, is to preach this passage and to help us understand the objective truths that lie at the heart of this text. And then all of us must 
filter our subjective experiences and our subjective intuitions and feelings through the lens of what is objectively revealed in this passage. So those are just a couple of preliminary comments. Let's start with our exposition of verses 31 and 32. Let's start here. Jesus begins by presenting a prevailing teaching that goes something like this. It was said, quote, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's not clear if Jesus is trying to quote or allude to a particular passage in the Old Testament, or if he's just quoting something the scribes and Pharisees were saying. It's at least something the scribes and Pharisees were saying. If he is alluding to an Old Testament passage, he's likely alluding to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there. However, this saying, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, wouldn't be a strict quote from the Deuteronomy 24 passage. That passage is a little more nuanced. The provision there is more involved. Deuteronomy 24 is presenting case law dealing with the aftermath of divorce, not strictly the grounds for divorce itself. Uh, the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees had deviated far from the Old Testament rule, which even then was only given as a concession due to the sinfulness of men's hearts and did not represent the divine ideal for marriage. The teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, apparently, of Jesus' day, the religious leaders, those who would have been the first ones looked to uh, to help the Jews of the day interpret the Scriptures. Uh, their teaching apparently allowed men to divorce their wives not only over sexual immorality, but over irreconcilable differences and, frankly, practically anything at all. All you have to do is give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, you can read in uh, some of the extra-biblical literature around this time, the Jewish literature that was taught, uh, that there were even provisions to divorce a wife if she spoiled the meal. Uh, if he didn't like her cooking, if she burnt the toast, uh, that could be stipulated as a grounds for a legitimate divorce in Jewish culture. The only requirement was then that you do it above board, that you give her a certificate, and this is formalized and ratified and recognized uh, by the leaders of the day. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious teachers of Jesus' day, and their thinking on divorce had become preoccupied with multiplying grounds for divorce for justifying ways men and women who had been married to one another could be separated, could be divorced from one another. Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, was not preoccupied in His ministry with enumerating and multiplying grounds for divorce, but with upholding the dignity and sanctity and glory of marriage. Uh, when He would gather with other rabbis, that's what He wanted to talk about. What is God's will concerning the union of man and woman in a covenant marriage, whereas the other rabbis wanted to talk about, now, now what are the permissible grounds for divorce? Uh, what are the ways men and women might separate from one another and divorce one another? So I just want to pause here briefly uh, and issue a caution to us to come to this conversation of divorce, marriage, and remarriage with an impulse that is preoccupied with figuring out all the various grounds for divorce maybe to be guilty of the same Pharisaism that is being condemned in this passage and in others. Uh, the impulse to explain away uh, the teaching of the Scriptures, of the law of God itself. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, not only in this passage, but in any passage, certainly in many of these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, when you come to a passage like this, resist the impulse to explain away what Jesus is saying. We couldn't really mean that. Well, isn't there more to the story? 
Uh, I'm not sure that he had the whole issue in view. Aren't there, you know, I know someone and this is how it went down and that's kind of uh, what I saw and how does that really fit in here? I don't know that it really does. We come up with corner cases that functionally dilute what the Lord Himself is saying in passages like this. I learned this week that John Stott, a famous uh, minister of All Souls Church in London, written many very helpful books, blessed many of us uh, with the Lord now, uh, John Stott said that he would never speak to anyone who came to him wanting to talk to him about divorce. He said, I wouldn't take that meeting. I would only broach that subject if they would agree to have a meeting first to talk about God's will for marriage and the Bible's teaching concerning reconciliation. And if that conversation was had, I would then be willing to talk to them about divorce, by which time that conversation had usually become unnecessary. This is what he's saying. If we reflect positively on God's vision and Christ's will for marriage and reconciliation, well, the conversation about how I can separate from my spouse that may become unnecessary. And I'll just confess, brothers and sisters, I feel this in my own heart, and I felt this as the one primarily tasked to preach these messages in the Sermon on the Mount so quickly. Uh, there's this impulse for people to throw up excuses. You know, we talked about anger a few weeks ago. Well, what about righteous anger? Isn't that something that's justified? We want to talk about that. Yeah. Well, these guys really mean that all sexual gratification outside of covenant marriage is wrong. Aren't there kind of certain situations? And we want to explain it away. People do the same thing with oaths and swearing and other things that we'll see about retaliation, allowing ourselves to be at times oppressed by others, loving our enemies. We immediately go to the corners and try to talk about what ways we might violate what our Lord has said. Let's focus on the big things that our Lord is saying, and that's what I wish to bring us to this morning. Jesus Himself does want to talk about marriage, and He wants to talk about divorce. And His aim is to call His disciples to a higher view of the sanctity of marriage and a greater sense of the evils of divorce than the religious teachers of His day. And so doing, He wants to directly target the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I'll say again, in His teaching... On the issue of divorce, Jesus does not give a full-orbed picture of the subject. He doesn't say everything that the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. He paints in this passage and in others with a broad brush and makes a couple very large and significant points that should govern our thinking and stand above everything else as we consider this subject. This passage, I want to say, does not represent the sum total of the Bible's teaching on divorce, nor does Jesus' teaching here anticipate every question we might ask or every scenario we might envision. Jesus is speaking to a particular context and to a particular issue. Those who wanted to dilute and diminish the sanctity, the gravity, the dignity, the beauty of covenant marriage, that's what He's going to speak to us this morning. So I want to stick with the big thrust I think there's kind of two headline news kind of issues that we have in Jesus' teaching on divorce and adultery and marriage in this passage. Let's consider these two, Jesus' teaching on divorce. First of all, the big thing I think we're to glean from this passage, Jesus hates divorce and wants to uphold the sanctity of marriage. Jesus hates divorce and wants to uphold the sanctity of marriage. Whatever people might have expected from Jesus… Uh, in terms of his place as one of the rabbis, among the rabbis of the day, whatever they thought might be his view, it becomes clear now that Jesus will not sanction the liberal view of the scribes and Pharisees on divorce that was prevalent in Jesus' day. His view of marriage demands that it not be treated 
lightly. That comes through very clearly, I think, in this passage. You don't divorce your spouse for frivolous reasons. In fact, here in this text, Jesus will only give one permissible reason to divorce one's spouse, and even then, it's a concession and not a command to divorce. He doesn't say if there's been sexual infidelity, you must divorce. He says in such cases, it's permissible, it is a concession that Jesus makes. What's the point then that Jesus wants to get across in verses 31 and 32? It is that marriage is precious. That marriage is sacred. As an institution, it should be guarded and treasured and protected. You do not divorce your wife or your husband frivolously. We'll get more of this perspective if we turn a few chapters over to Matthew 19. In fact, if you would, turn over there to Matthew chapter 19. There in that passage, here in this passage, Jesus says a bit more concerning His will uh, about marriage and the issue of divorce. Look with me at Matthew 19, verse 3. We read there, and Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? In other words, Jesus is saying, are you not aware of the dignified and sanctified and lofty view of marriage that's presented at the very front of your Bibles? In the garden, in a place of innocence, what God revealed concerning man and woman and their marriage to one another. So verse 6, he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, you scribes and Pharisees, cut it out. You who would multiply grounds for divorce to separate what God has put together, shame on you. What God has put together, let no man separate. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, before sin entered the world, there was no such thing as divorce. This is the fruit of sin in the world. Verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So all kinds of questions we might want to ask at this point, but what is the headline news? What's the big point Jesus is making? Marriage is not a trivial thing. Oh, it's not a light thing. Marriage, Jesus says, is the bringing together of two bodies and two souls in physical and spiritual oneness. We talked about this last week. We talked about hookup culture. The idea that, hey, what's the big deal? You could pass your body around to different sexual partners. You know, there's no damage that's being done there. Well, there's all kinds of psychological data that is demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt. There's all kinds of damage being done there. But more than that, there's biblical data to indicate that when a man and woman exchange themselves sexually, enter into sexual union, more than their bodies are coming together. There is a mystical kind of oneness in their person, the two becoming one. Jesus will tell us this is profound, it is solemn, it is glorious, it is mysterious. And illegitimate divorce treats it lightly. 
no-fault divorce, divorce over irreconcilable differences and the like, the typical cultural attitude toward divorce treats lightly what God treats as sacred. It's remarkable to consider some of you are old enough uh, that you would remember a time that maybe no one in your acquaintance had parents who were divorced. A divorce had a stigma attached to it. I don't think that was the fruit of kind of traditional American Western values. I think that stigma is understandably built upon the Word of God, that divorce is something to be lamented. It's not to say there aren't legitimate divorces, and it's not to say that there aren't certain divorcees who are the victim in this situation and should have our pity and our sympathy. People can be upright, even in the context of a divorce, but divorce is always a sad thing. Divorce is always receiving a kind of defeat. Divorce is the product of sin. And the prevailing cultural attitude that says, for any reason at all, you can divorce from the person you've been married to and built a family with, treats lightly what God treats as sacred. In preparation for this sermon, I just thought I'd ask Google, uh, when should I get a divorce? Uh, Jenna, seeing my search history later, was a little troubled. No. Ask Google, it's all I put in. When should I get a divorce? First result uh, was Women's Health Mag, not something I read often. And the title of the article was 18 Signs a Marriage is Over According to Relationship Experts. I'm not going to read all 18, but here are some of the signs. This is recommended content to women on why they should divorce from their husbands. Number one, you're growing apart. I don't really know what that means. I guess you were together, you grow apart. In all seriousness, my wife has come to me before and said, Alex, I feel like we're growing apart. We're not connecting as much as we used to. Uh, Brothers, if your wife comes to you with that concern, that means you need a date night. Not that you need to divorce your wife. Maybe you need to do some things proactively to ensure that you don't grow apart, but preserve the oneness of the relationship. Uh, Secondly, you find that you're chronically unhappy. It is remarkable to me in 2023, people still think we should find our happiness in other people. Uh, If this person makes me unhappy, I shouldn't be with them. Uh, You're having the same fight over and over again. I imagine there's not a couple here who doesn't have some fights they've been having since they got married. But apparently, according to the relationship experts, that means you should divorce. Uh, There's a sexual style mismatch. I don't know what that means. One of you does not like being a parent. Isn't that something? If you don't like being a parent, well, maybe it's time for a divorce. And I assume they mean turn custody over to the other parent or something like that. Uh, You're only in it for the children. You're blaming each other for everything. You're fantasizing about the end of your marriage. Your kids have moved out of the house, and you don't want to be around each other anymore. The relationship experts, whoever those people are, will recommend these as good grounds for why you should separate and divorce the man or the woman that you're with, if this is any part of your experience. Uh, I don't say this lightly, but this is a total joke. Uh, Just imagine for a second the same thinking was applied to the parent-child relationship. Uh, My children don't make me happy anymore, so I'm going to get rid of them. 
I'm going to walk out. How immediately ridiculous and perverse that would seem to us. The fact that these stipulations for divorce are kind of seen as acceptable and the reason people get divorced in our day and age is a reflection of how far we've fallen as a culture. We all know people who have divorced on these grounds. These are evidences of a light and trivial view of what marriage is. This is the prevailing attitude toward marriage in our culture. We speak of falling in love and falling out of love, like you were just walking and you fell into it, like you fell into a hole or something like that, and then you fell out of it somehow. I don't know how you fall out of something, but that's apparently something we've learned how to do. We've learned that if someone violates my own sense of myself, doesn't give me all my hopes and dreams, I'm free to go and find someone who can satisfy me and can give me the things that I want. And we might go from relationship to relationship. We think that's an acceptable way to live. This is the prevailing view of this issue in our culture. I want you to contrast the 18 signs that your marriage is over from Women's Health Mag uh, with this statement I'm about to read uh, from the Book of Common Prayer written 500 years ago by Thomas Cranmer at the time of the English Reformation. The words are going to be familiar to most of you. If you've ever been to a wedding in Emmanuel Church, you've heard me read some of these words. These were the words read out in virtually every single marriage ceremony for about 300 years in England. Now, I want you to consider as I read the way this might shape the way we think about the institution of marriage. This is what Thomas Cranmer wrote. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is between Christ and His church. Which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with His presence and first miracle He wrought in Cana of Galilee, and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which marriage was ordained. First, Cranmer says, it was ordained for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of His holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons have not the gift of continence he might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, this is Old English, okay? We might frame this a little differently. Because of how beautiful this is. It was ordained for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity, into which holy estate these two persons present come now to be joined. Therefore, if any man can show any just cause which they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak, or else hereafter forever hold his peace. In other words, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And you've heard the vows of the Book of Common Prayer. One of them is this, I, John, take thee, Jane, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part according to God's holy ordinance. And there too I plight thee my troth. I've told this story before of uh, a man who used to be in our church and uh, wanted to divorce his wife, had no cause to divorce his wife, and he sort of shouted at me, well, Alex, doesn't God want me to be happy? It's wrong for me to expect that my wife would make me happy. To which I said, yes, it is wrong. God never promised you that your wife will make you happy. I didn't say this, but I should have said this. You vowed, for better or for worse, sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, not just when she pleases you, but you see how lightly our culture takes marriage against the backdrop of this attitude, which I think is built on the very text that I'm preaching this morning. Cranmer's attitude toward marriage and the attitude of the Anglican people in England for centuries was one that honored and upheld the institution of marriage as a godly thing, as a sanctified thing, as a holy thing, something to be fought for, something to be protected, something to be guarded, and something to be preserved. You can imagine people who entered into marriage on these terms did not consider divorce an option. At least that was the attitude they brought into the marriage. I'm marrying this person, planning to die with this person. I don't plan to divorce them. In fact, I view that as a non-option, and I pray no such legitimate grounds would ever be supplied for a lawful divorce. Well, friends, it's very easy for me to stand up here and to throw rocks at the culture we should not be surprised when the world adopts worldly attitudes. But I ask you, how do you think we're doing in the church? I was going to read off some statistics for the sake of time. I won't do that. I bet many of you know them. Uh, that in so-called evangelical churches, the divorce rates are basically equivalent uh, to those in the wider culture. It does not appear that in the typical evangelical churches in America, we have done much better to uphold the sanctity and the dignity of marriage. So friends, it just needs to be said as we come to this passage this morning, the degree to which the church has made friends with no-fault divorce is to our shame. You could be a culture warrior all day long and stand up and talk about LGBTQ issues, but if you tolerate divorce on less than biblical grounds, you don't have a moral leg to stand on. See, so many Christians since 2015, Obergefell decision, up in arms about gay marriage and all that kind of stuff. Where were the evangelicals in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s that made friends uh, with frivolous divorce in our midst? I'm not talking about cases where there was abuse. I'm not talking about sexual immorality. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about no-fault divorce irreconcilable differences. She doesn't make me happy anymore. Where were the pastors standing up to address such cases? Where were the members? We said, Pastor, I think we need to deal with this. Friends, as a culture, uh, we have reaped what we've sown in our attitude toward marriage and sexuality. 
And what we need as the church is to be humbled and to be sobered and to repent of our lax attitude toward Christ's will regarding sex and sexuality and marriage and adultery and divorce. We reap what we sow. What is needed is a revival of those who will say what God has said in His Word and speak to it without apology, without any shame, regardless of what hostility or opposition may come on those grounds. May we as a culture and as a church feel the appropriate shame we ought to feel for being washed along with our culture and the ongoing dilution and diminution of the sacred institution of marriage, and may we resolve to stand with Jesus on this and like Him put forth the highest possible view of marriage. That's the first thing I think revealed in this passage with respect to Christ's will regarding divorce and marriage. Secondly, and more briefly, I think we learn in this passage very clearly that sexual immorality is stipulated as legitimate grounds for divorce. I don't think this is the only grounds. I think there are other passages that will speak to other grounds. But clearly Jesus is stipulating sexual immorality, that is adultery or fornication, as grounds for divorce. Where there has been adultery, brothers and sisters, let's say what Jesus has said, no more and no less. In such cases, divorce is permissible. Not required, but permissible. Now, I'll just ask you, this passage doesn't reveal this, but I'll ask you, why do you think sexual immorality, uh, that is adultery, uh, why is adultery stipulated, in this case, as the one legitimate exception uh, for divorce, or the one legitimate grounds upon which divorce may be undertaken again in this passage? I don't think that Jesus, in allowing for this concession, is diminishing his view of marriage at all. Rather, it upholds what marriage is. Because what has happened in issues of adultery? The one flesh covenant union has been broken. It's been violated. The two have not lived as one. And therefore, in such cases, and in this passage, Jesus is saying only such cases, divorce can be tolerated. Because of what marriage is, it's not unlike how the death penalty is justified uh, by God Himself in cases where murder has taken place. Uh, what is being revealed in that command, that in such cases, uh, the life of the one who committed murder is to have their own life taken. It's actually upholding human dignity. It's upholding the image of God in man. So great an offense has taken place that in this case the death penalty is justified. Well, in a comparable way, in the context of marriage, it's only when the one flesh covenant union has been violated that even divorce can be contemplated. In such cases, it may be pursued. Maybe. It doesn't have to be, but maybe because of what adultery says and the market is on the dignity of covenant marriage. The fact that something as serious as sexual immorality may become legitimate grounds for divorce speaks both to the seriousness of sexual immorality and the sacredness of marriage. These are the big things I think are revealed in Matthew 5, 31 through 32. I don't think we've answered every question folks might have, not even most of the prevalent questions folks might have about marriage and divorce. But the big things we should see here is that Jesus is not going to take a lax attitude toward divorce. He hates divorce. He wants to uphold the dignity of marriage. And in some cases, cases of sexual immorality, divorce is permissible. Now, before leaving this point, I want to speak to two types of people who may be in the room this morning. 
Uh, some of you are here this morning, and you have been divorced, uh, and you have been divorced on grounds that your former spouse uh, brought to the table. Uh, maybe there was sexual immorality committed against you, or maybe some of the other type things that Paul and others would write about in later books of the Bible. I want to make sure you know uh, that with all that I said this morning and all that is revealed about the sanctity of marriage, there are those who are victims in cases of divorce. And if you are the victim in those cases, you have our sympathy and our care. And we want to come alongside you and uphold you and support you and love you. You didn't do anything wrong. I say divorce is always a defeat, right? We live in a fallen world. But you did nothing wrong if you were the victim of a divorce and you did not stipulate grounds. You have our sympathy and care. We want to help you as a church family in any way we can. The second group I want to speak to is maybe some among us, and there are some among us, who have themselves introduced grounds for divorce through their own conduct and behavior. Uh, perhaps you were guilty of adultery or guilty of some other thing that made uh, the divorce take place. What I want to say to you this morning is that committing such a sin, though a serious sin, is not the unpardonable sin. You can be forgiven. If you have pre presented grounds to your spouse to be divorced, if you've committed adultery, if you violated the one flesh union and there was a divorce that occurred as a result of it, you can be forgiven. And what I would say to you, brother or sister, uh, you can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ and you are not required then to forfeit a life of fruitful service and obedience to Christ. You can be restored, you can be a functioning and fruitful member of the church body, and you can lay hold of what's in front of you, not looking behind. And you're welcome to be part of this church community. Someone asked me in a membership class recently, can divorced people be members here? And I was sort of surprised by the question. We're all in this sinful mess together. We've committed all kinds of sins. If you are coming here repenting of your sins and hoping in the blood of Jesus Christ to save you, come on in. You're welcome to be part of the church family. And in your case also, even if the divorce was precipitated by your behavior and your conduct, we want to support you as well and help you to follow Christ's commands and to live a fruitful life in obedience to the Lord Jesus. All right, so much for the first point, Christ's will regarding divorce revealed in these verses. Consider with me secondly, Christ's will regarding oaths and swearing. And I'll have to be much more brief here. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, verse 33. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is not a direct quotation from the Old Testament Scriptures. It is an allusion, we think, to a number of Old Testament passages in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus responds then by saying, do not take an oath at all. Now, some take this prohibition as absolute. And they understood Jesus to be saying, never in any circumstance ever take an oath. Uh, and thus his words would indict taking an oath of office or an oath in court or an oath of allegiance or similar type things. However, I'm not convinced Jesus means to offer an absolute indictment of literally all oath-taking. 
I think, again, Jesus is speaking to a particular context. He has in mind a prevailing teaching among the scribes and Pharisees of his day. And I think Jesus expects us to understand that this is the context he is speaking to. I'll say more about that context in a moment. But let me first say, I think if we understand Jesus to be offering a universal indictment of all swearing and oath-taking, we're going to run into some serious problems in the rest of our Bibles, where God Himself swears and takes oaths. See Hebrews 6.17, where Jesus Himself is going to be placed under oath in Matthew 26 and doesn't seem to object to being placed under oath. The Apostle Paul himself will make many oaths and often call God His witness and will call upon the name of Christ to accentuate the significance of what he's saying. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he actually puts a whole church under oath. He says, I put you under oath to read this letter to all the churches. So I don't think we should conclude here that Jesus is indicting all oath taken. He's speaking rather to a particular context. And what was that particular context? Well, what had developed in popular Jewish teaching at the time was a complicated system of oath-taking that determined when or when not you had to keep your vow. So if you swore by certain things, well, then you didn't have to do what you pledged to do. But if you swore by other things, then you were obligated to keep your vow. Thus, as one commentator puts it, these oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth and promoted deceit. Swearing evasively became a justification for lying. So Jesus will say this later in Matthew 25. He pronounces woes over the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, uh, you blind guides, because you say, I'm paraphrasing, that if you uh, swear by the temple, you don't have to perform what you've sworn. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, then you have to fulfill your vow. He's saying, what are you doing? That's the context that Jesus is speaking to. And Jesus, in almost rhetorical fashion, says, you know what? Better to take no oaths at all. But just to speak the truth on the grounds of your own words, your own character, your own truthfulness, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. In other words, in the kingdom of heaven, there's no need for oaths because there will be no lying. Everyone will speak the truth with his neighbor. Rather, our yes is our yes and our no is our no. So what should we do, brothers and sisters, practically with this teaching from our Lord? Well, first of all, we should take care to speak always with such truthfulness, clarity, accuracy, honesty, that oaths become entirely unnecessary. If you have to take an oath in a court of law where that oath holds some significance in the context of a fallen world, fine. But there should be no need for oath-taking among the people of God in order to establish the truth. In the kingdom of heaven, we speak honestly with each other. We always speak with the absolute truth. All that's needed is a yes or a no staked on nothing other than our own virtue and integrity. Does it need to be reinforced with oaths? What Jesus is in essence doing here is He is reinforcing the ninth commandment, which requires that we not lie. God's people as citizens of the kingdom of heaven are truth-tellers. Their yes is their yes, and their no is their no. Honest men and women, Christian men and women need not resort to oaths. Our trustworthiness should be staked on our holiness before the Lord, not on our mother's grave, not on the head of our firstborn son, not on our ancestors or what have you. And friends, I think if we're to be faithful to this passage, the kind of people who say yes, it's yes, no, it's no, 
I think there are further implications for us. This doesn't just mean we avoid outright bald-faced lying, which we must do. This means we should avoid also subtle deceptions and manipulations. Maybe you don't straightforwardly lie to people, but do you try to manipulate them with your words? Do you try to deceive them through trickery, through subtlety, through artifice, through nuance, through withholding information or over-amplifying some information? Do you mislead and deceive? Do you exchange in this kind of thing with your spouse? Little deceptions, manipulations with your husband or with your wife. Do you do this, young people, with your parents? I didn't technically lie, I just sort of withheld certain truths. I didn't tell them exactly where I was last night, but I, I told them something that was true about the night, and so I'm good. Does that pass the standard of this passage? Uh, people in the marketplace, uh, are you speaking the absolute truth with your employer, with your boss, with your supervisor? Do your bosses, if they were interviewed, would they know uh, this man, uh, uh, John, this woman, Jane, uh, who profess to be Christians, I never have to go behind them. Never have to wonder if I'm getting the whole story. Never have to wonder if they're speaking the truth. They don't need to reinforce it with any kind of data. If he says yes, if she says yes, the answer is yes. If he says no, she says no, the answer is no. Further, I think a legitimate application of this text is that we should avoid exaggeration and overstatement in order to amplify our case or to present ourselves or our case in the best light, not representing things truly accurately. Uh, I'll admit this is something that I've struggled with in my life. Uh, I will never forget a brother in our own church. Uh, he he cut, sort of made the joke, uh, talking about my words, you know, early in the life of the church. Uh, but when Alex reports something, you kind of got to do Alex math. So if he says there were 100 people in the room, there were probably 80. You know, if he says the movie was a 10 out of 10, it was probably an 8 out of 10. And I felt an appropriate measure of shame in light of what I knew the Lord had said here. I was developing the reputation among some of my friends for exaggeration and overstatement. Well, I don't think I could come to this text and say, well, I didn't strictly lie. No, my yes was not my yes. My no was not my no. People had to adjust the things I was saying in order to get the full account, the accurate story, to know exactly what it was that took place. Well, friends, we need to avoid those kinds of sins. We may think they're respectable sins or little sins. Jesus gives us a positive and holy standard that our words don't need to be backed up by anything other than our own virtue, our own integrity as Christ followers who, like our Lord, will at all times speak the truth, only the truth, and nothing but the truth. There are other examples of ways we violate this all the time. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention this. Uh, this does come up occasionally and should not come up among us. Uh, we'll sometimes hear as elders, if someone doesn't like a particular decision or something going on, as uh, happens even in a church like ours, uh, someone uh, will say, well, pastor, some people are saying, you know, and they give their point of view. Uh, and, and one brother uh, early in our time together said, look, we don't respond to anonymous tips. You know, unless you want to tell me who's saying that, uh, we're not going to do anything with that. You know, some people use that phrase. Some people are saying, you know, the people are starting to murmur. Some people are saying what they mean by that sometimes is, well, I assume there are other people who think like I do. I didn't exactly ask them, but kind of reading between the lines, I kind of got the sense they'd sympathize with my view. But of course, when you say, well, who said that? 
oh, well, uh, that kind of thing. And what are we doing? In all these little ways, we can smirk at it. But we are not following the standard our Lord has set for us, where what we say is verifiably true, what we say is accurate, what we say is right. May God help us to follow this standard and to be people who speak the truth to one another. Not only that we don't lie to one another, but we don't misrepresent the truth or deceive or manipulate or in any of these ways violate what our Lord has called us to do. As I draw to a close now, I want to say something not about divorce and remarriage or about oaths and swearing. I want to say something about Pharisaism. Uh, If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard people talk about the Pharisees and what the faults of the Pharisees were. Maybe you have called someone in your life a Pharisee, or you're being Pharisaical, or maybe someone has called you that. What do you think it is to be a Pharisee? Oh, you're such a Pharisee. Usually what people mean when they say that is, uh, you are imposing a bunch of your own man-made rules. You're a legalist. Uh, You are about technical obedience to all the little details. You're a Pharisee. Okay, that's partially accurate to what the Pharisees were flaws that they introduced. The Pharisees were known for their man-made rules, far beyond what God had actually required in His Word. But is that what we're seeing is the problem with the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount? I don't know that that is the main problem, because the Pharisees were not only legalists at times, they managed to be, and here's a theological word, antinomians also, meaning they don't uphold God's law, The Pharisees were experts in getting around God's law and God's will. They knew how to multiply excuses for why they're not going to do what the heart of the law required. And so they developed a system of oath-taking where they didn't really have to tell the truth. They developed all kinds of grounds for divorce where they didn't have to actually stay married to the people they didn't want to stay married to. Oh, they said, hey, I've not murdered anybody. I've never driven the knife into someone else, but they could justify anger in their hearts. I've never slept with someone outside the marriage bed, but yet they were lusting. What were they doing? Well, the issue here is not multiplying a bunch of man-made rules, but kind of working around religiously to avoid doing the very thing that God had called them to do. Well, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage us uh, to banish such ways of thinking from our minds. If we're going to be faithful Christians and follow Jesus according to the will He sets for us in the Sermon on the Mount, we will not be those looking eagerly for excuses not to do what Christ has called us to do, but will listen attentively to our Lord to find the path of righteousness, to obey the heart of the law, to be eager to do those very things that He has called us to do. So if you detect in your heart a pharisaical spirit, you know what? I've been trying to play games with Jesus. I'm trying to get around doing what I know the Lord requires me to do. I urge you, go to Christ. Repent of that attitude. Experience forgiveness for taking a pharisaical posture toward His will. And then let Him, as your Savior and your Lord, teach you then how to walk in uprightness and virtue and holiness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we pray that you would give to us as your disciples, as your people, a posture that is eager to do what you call us to do. May we be those who love your commands, 
who hate sin in every crooked way and desire the straight paths of righteousness that you would lead us in. We pray, Father, that we would not be like the scribes and Pharisees of old who invited the opposition of our Savior through their attitude toward the law and their attitude toward Him. We pray that we would not be guilty of these things, trying to work our way around doing what you have clearly called us to do in your word. Rather, we pray, Lord, by those who have been born again, have been united to the Lord Jesus, we pray that we would reject every crooked way. We pray that we would do what is right. We pray that we would live in such a way that would honor our Savior and uphold the commands and the laws he has given to us. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.